This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Hello and welcome to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. I'm your host, Luke Oswald, and I hope you join me on my quest for knowledge to become a better public land hunter, angler, and forager. Stick with us and who knows, maybe we will learn something together. The guest on this episode, Ellen Zakos, was a fun one. She's an interesting and very intelligent person. She made me laugh throughout the episode and also taught me a lot. She's the author of Backyard Foraging, 65 Familiar Plants You Didn't Know You Could Eat, as well as many other books. She has a website, backyardforager.com, where she posts recipes as well as different cocktails she's always creating from her foraging finds. She also has classes that you can take on her website as well. So if you haven't heard of her, she's definitely one you'd probably want to check out, probably buy her book, and definitely listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. So here we go. Okay, I'm sitting here with Ellen Zakos, and she is an author as well as a blogger, I believe, and I have a few questions to ask her. So Ellen, I'm just going to get started and say, tell me about yourself and how did you get started foraging? Um, well, first of all, thank you for wanting to talk to me. I appreciate the interest. And I lived in New York City for many, many years. And you would not think that New York City is where somebody would learn to be a forager, but it is. Um, and my my profession there was I designed, installed, and, and maintained rooftop gardens. So I worked with plants. I, I was a gardener, a professional gardener. Um, and one of the people that worked for me was a forager. And she, one day we were sitting having lunch. I also did backyards and she plucked a leaf of garlic mustard off of the lawn and suggested I add that to my sandwich. I thought she was crazy, but I did it anyway because I trusted her and it was delicious. And it, that was my aha moment. You know, I thought, 
wow, how much other free stuff is out there that's delicious that I don't know is edible. And I was already interested in local seasonal food and I love to cook and it just kind of struck me like a bolt of lightning. Wow, that's kind of like mine, not quite like that because <laughs> what, I didn't. What was, what was yours? What was yours? So as a little kid, uh, my dad gave me the book. It was uh, Survival and it was Army Field Manual. Ah, and yes. Within yeah. that book, there was a bunch of different things about foraging certain plants and how to skin an animal and eat it and all those things. And it just kind of intrigued me. So as I started getting older, I started looking more into it. And then I kind of fell out of it and I just started hunting. Well, then as I'm sitting at a tree stand, as you know, there's plenty of time to start pondering things again. Right. So then I started thinking, man, I wonder how much food is all around me. So obviously I started with the easiest thing, which is mushrooms, right? And so no, I bought... that's not the easiest thing. Well, I, to I me... hope you're being sarcastic. <laughs> I mean, it's del they're delicious, but by no means the most easy thing. Well, I don't mean easy, but uh, the most obvious selection for a lot of people, actually, I mean, your morels, of course, and mm -hmm. so things like yeah. that. And yeah. um, so I, you know, started asking a few people and talking to them. They're like, yeah, yeah, come on out. I'll take you out and started doing that. And then a guy at work actually got me started finding uh, Hen of the Woods. Mm. So... And I mean, One so, yeah. yeah, yes. And so he taught me and showed me a special dish, how to prepare it. And you cook it down in oil and Italian spices and green peppers in it. And it's just wonderful dish. So that mm -hmm. kind of got me intrigued even more. And I thought, okay, what else is out there that I don't know about? Yeah. And, and that's a kind lot, of, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So once you got started though, Ellen, what, what resources did you use and what would you recommend to someone? Um, well, I'm somebody who loves to read. So the first thing I did was, I mean, if you could, you can see that shelf of books behind me. I do. Um, a, a lot of those books are foraging books. I read everything I could get my hands on. I love to read. Um, but also being in New York, I was very lucky because I had some great teachers nearby. Um, and the friend who, who gave me that leaf of garlic mustard, um, was one of my first foraging teachers. You, you may have heard of Leda Meredith. She's also written several books on foraging and, and she's a dear friend. We just, just actually last weekend were at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival in Prairie du Chien, Wisconsin, which you should come to someday, by the way, Lucas, it's I, a great event. I found out a little bit late on that yeah. one. Okay. Well, so. next year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, so, so she was there and I, I took classes with her and Gary Linkoff, who's, you know, just such a, was a wonderful mushroom teacher. I took classes with him at the New York Botanic Garden and I just started to, you know, I went in search of as much information as I possibly could. I, I read, I got out in the field. I, I, I found out about the North Carolina Wild Foods Festival and Sam Thayer was talking there that year. And I was like, I'm going to go meet Sam Thayer. And now we're friends and that's wonderful. But, you know, I just did everything I could possibly think of to absorb as much information as I could. That's really cool. That's cool. I like that. Um, it's neat that you can actually go interface with these people. I've never even thought about that. It's one of those things that until Dude. recently I've learned by doing some research that there's all kinds of festivals and things out there. And Oh, yeah. And we're a friendly bunch, too. I got to tell you, this was my sixth or seventh year at the Midwest Harvest Wild Harvest Festival. I, I teach there every year. And 
it's like it's like a family reunion. I, I only see these people once a year, but it's so nice to be with people who don't look at you like you're crazy <laughs> when you tell them you're a forager or who don't think you're talking about dumpster diving. It's just a lovely feeling to be with people who think it's perfectly normal to live that way. See, and that's one of the things I had an idea in my head or even people I talked to, they're kind of talking about, oh, well, isn't it the stereotypical kind of, you know, living out in the woods hippie that doesn't like meat and all these things? And I'm like, I, you know, I don't really think so, but, no. you know, need to reach out to some more people and find out. There's all kinds. And that's that's one of the things that's so cool. I mean, at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival and all these other events I've been to, first of all, nobody talks politics, which is great because I'm sure we'd like to be rolling on the ground fighting with each other. But we have enough sense to leave that behind. And and you've got all sorts. You've got you've got hunters, you've got vegans, you've got people who love to cook, people who are raw diet followers. You've got every kind of person out there, mushroom fanatics, people who only are interested in greens. And it's a wonderful coming together of people who share a common interest. And we all kind of forget about our differences and really focus on the things that unite us. And it, it, it really feels wonderful. I know that sounds super corny, but it's, it's the truth. I love it. No, it actually doesn't sound corny at all. I believe the same thing. If you look at uh, even hunters, they come from all different walks of life and all different mm -hmm. backgrounds. And it's neat to see them get together. And that's like they do uh, backcountry hunters and anglers rendezvous every year. And I mean, there's people from all walks of life. I'm going to try and get out and go to that too. And they mm -hmm. even have foragers there. It's one of those yeah. things that just, you know, it interests me because there's people that have never even hunted or foraged mm -hmm. or done any of that, but they want to learn. And that's really neat. Um, that Hank Shaw is one person that kind of piqued my interest in this mm -hmm. even more. And mm -hmm. uh, to see him doing all sides and aspects. And one of the things he said that kind of resonated with me that I would like to experiment more with was if you see the animal eating it, it's a good chance that the animal, when you cook it, pairs well with it. Uh, yes. And I, I'm also a big fan of Hank's. Um, he's a he's a really interesting guy and knows his stuff. Um, and I, I remember reading what he wrote about that, that, that that's one of the places he takes inspiration from, you know, if that's what the animal is feeding on, or if you see that growing around you while you are hunting that animal, think about putting those foods together. I'm not a hunter, but I love to shoot. And I've been looking online for, I, I've been told that there's all these organizations that especially are interested in teaching women how to hunt. And I think they must exist every place except in New Mexico, because I can't even find a Becoming an Outdoor Woman program in New Mexico, and they're supposed to exist in every state. So I, I got to look a little harder, because it's something that my husband and I really, you know, I want to start with small game, and I, I really want to learn how to do that. I, uh, I'll do a little more research and talk to a few people I know and try and try and make that happen for well, you because I would be like great. to see it. I would like to Thank see you. that too. <laughs> Thank you. So the resources that you did use, I mean, mm -hmm. are there any books that you would recommend to me or? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would recommend Sam Thayer's books with, as the, the, the absolutely top recommendations. Um, and gosh, I should look over, hang on a second. I'm going to look over on my bookshelf. Okay, so it's Nature's Garden, The Forager's Harvest, and the last one is something like Incredible Edible Plants, 36 Plants That Will Change Your Life. And they are all amazing. Um, 
and he's such a wonderful writer. He has vast amounts of experience. He's also an impeccable researcher, and he has a great sense of humor. So you're reading this stuff, and it's not just plant profiles. He, he makes you laugh out loud when you're. I don't. Do, do do you have Sam's books? Do you I, know? I I do not. I do not have his books. You you. I I can't recommend them highly enough. I recommend them even before my own books, and that tells you something. Um, I thought your he, book was good. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's very good. And I think it's great for beginners because, you know, it gets you started, you know, in your own surroundings where you, you know the plants and it takes some of the fear out of identification if it's growing in your own backyard. But if you if you decide to take it to the next level, Sam's books are amazing. Um, the one thing he doesn't do a lot of is recipes um, because, I mean, of course, he loves to eat and he appreciates good food, but that's just not something that he writes about. Um, so, so I think his books are essential. And to be honest with you, I really think Yule Gibbons is a good read. I know he's an old-fashioned read, but I like his books and I've learned from his books too. So I, I uh, admire those as well. So the Sam Thayer, because I've read some books that actually get so deep into the science of the plant and mm -hmm. the genus and everything that no, it loses. No, he's not gonna, yeah, no, Sam is, is, is very practical. And I, I'm not going to say he doesn't go deep because his chapter on acorns is like 30 or 40 pages <laughs> long. But it's good information. And he does not get bogged down in, you know, which species of Quercus is the best one to harvest. But he will tell you the difference between red, red oak acorns and white oak acorns. And, and people need to know that. They don't need to know it in enormous detail, right. but they do need to know that there's a difference and probably they, they're going to need to be processed a little differently. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. <laughs> mm -hmm. I like that. There's also some, there's some good websites out there. Um, you might've seen uh, Green Dean's website. Uh, he's based in Florida. So not all of his plants are going to be relevant to the entire country. His website, I think is called eattheweeds.com, uh, but he's got really good information. And, and I have a lot of really good recipes on my website. I'm, I'm really focused not only on the foraging, but on the cooking because I love to eat. And I think it's important to know what to do with your harvest. You put all that work into gathering and when you get home, you're not going to be able to find, you know, dock leaves in the joy of cooking. So, so if you go to backyardforager.com, you're going to find those recipes that'll help you turn your wild harvest into something really delicious. It's, it's good that you said that. I was going to get into that later, but I'm just going to go ahead and ask you then, what is your okay. favorite thing for each of the seasons? And oh. then how would you like to pre prepare that? Okay. Well, it's mushroom season right now, right? So, I mean, fall to me means mushrooms. There's other wonderful things, but fall to me means mushrooms. Um, and I love Hen of the Woods. <sighs> yeah, I love, I think Hen of the Woods might be my favorite fall mushroom. Although I'm also, I'm also very fond of honeys. I really do like honey mushrooms, but um, I just love Hen of the Woods. So when you, you were making me hungry earlier when you were <laughs> describing that dish, I guess my favorite way, I, it's hard to pick just one recipe, but I like to, one thing I like to do with Hen of the Woods is break the, break the fronds off, you know, keep the pieces large, toss them in olive oil, a little bit of salt and pepper, and roast them at about 425 degrees so that they just get a little bit of caramelized on the um, outside, but they still stay, stay soft inside. And I, I really recommend 
when you're starting out with a wild ingredient that you keep it as simple as possible so that you can understand the flavor of that wild ingredient. Um, don't go pouring cheese sauce over your milkweed at the first time because it's going to be delicious, but it's going to taste like cheese sauce. <laughs> so, so I would say try a really simple preparation. Or if you, if you want to stir fry those mushrooms and put them in with a simple pasta or a simple rice, do that first. It's a really great way to appreciate the flavor of of the mushroom if you're if you're lucky enough to find something like hen of the woods or porcini or honeys in the fall so i believe i found some porcinis the other day or or something that's very similar to them it was a brownish Mm -hmm. color on top and it actually had almost like a honeycomb structure on the bottom is that what that was well, I, I couldn't possibly tell you this from that description, but I can tell you that um, I don't think there are any bolites that will kill you, and bolites are the mushrooms that have those pores on the bottom as opposed to gills right. or teeth, but okay. um, but there are many bolites, and not all of them are delicious, and many of them have brown tops, so um, <laughs> that's as far as I'm going to go with that one, Lucas. Okay. Sorry, I'm that's not okay. going to get it for you that way. I, I'm going to look in Greg's, Greg Mueller's book and try and find some more uh, insight on it before I go picking them, but I did mark them, and I found a whole lot Good. of them, too. So. Oh, well, that's great. That's great. <laughs> um, so, so, so I'm supposed to be taking this. Sorry, so that was fall. So <laughs> yes, winter, I'm thinking... Did you? So that's fine. I don't have to do it. Or no, you. I, I still would like to know. <laughs> I'm curious. No. Okay. Okay. Well, if, you know where I live, it gets pretty cold in winter, and there's not a lot to forage. So I'm gonna go with acorns for winter, because I love acorn flour and I use it a lot. And I remember the first time I processed it, thinking, "Oh my gosh, this is so hard." But I, I didn't feel like I was really a forager until after I did it, and it really wasn't that hard. It, it takes a while. Um, you know, especially if you're cold leaching and if you want to use that acorn flour as flour, you need to cold leach it because that leaves the starch intact and that's going to help it bind if you use it in a bread or any kind of baked good. Um, whereas hot leaching, which is much faster, cooks the starch and that means you can use it as a nut or you could use it as a soup base, but it's not going to bind as well as flour. Uh, but acorn flour is delicious. It's got a lot of protein. It's got a rich flavor. That's my favorite winter foraged item. I, I, no, no question about it. So as far as the leaching, is that to take the tannins out of it or is that? Yeah, it is. And, and um, you need to take the tannins out for, for two reasons. First of all, because they have a bitter flavor, so they're not pleasant to eat. But also because tannins inhibit the absorption of nutrition in your intestine. So even if you don't think it tastes bitter, some people have a very high tolerance for, for bitter flavors. And if you... Um, but if you consume a lot of tannins, you're not going to be able to absorb the nutrition that you're getting from other foods. So it's a good idea to, to do that leaching. Um, certain acorns have more tannins than others. There's always people who say, oh, I found this sweet acorn. It didn't need any leaching at all. I've eaten a lot of acorns in my life. I've never found one that I didn't need to leach, but maybe it's out there. It's kind of like the white whale. <laughs> but, but uh, yeah, I've never found it. I've always had to leach. But I know that things like like burr acorns, burr oak acorns have fewer tannins than many other acorns. So you'd probably have to leach that a little bit less. Okay, that's have you, good. Have you know. done ac- Have you done acorns yet? I have not. I have not. I tried to eat one when I was a kid, and it was very bitter. And yeah, then I well... toasted one. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah. No, you should, you should try acorns. You're going to feel a great sense of accomplishment. Um, 
and it's not hard to do. You just need to follow the steps. In fact, if you remind me, email me, I have a PDF that I made up about how to hot leach acorns, and I hot leached the first time. It's a good way to get started. Um, so if you want, I can send it to you. It's step-by-step -step with photos. Sure, I'd like that. I'll even post okay. it on the link on this, uh, okay. this podcast, too. Sure. So everyone okay. can have it. That'd okay. be great. Yep. All right. So <laughs> spring, I'm going to cheat on spring and I'm going to say greens because okay. there's so many, you know, how do you choose between, between nettles and dandelions and dock greens and all those wonderful things that come up in the spring? I, I, I love them almost equally. Maybe nettles are my favorite. I don't know. Do you have a favorite spring green? You know, the only ones, no, I don't. In fact, I haven't really picked any. So are there any specific or something unmistakable as far as a green that you would recommend to yeah. a beginner? Well, I think almost everybody recognizes a dandelion, right? I mean, you would. Yes, yeah? yes. And yeah. I've known. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've so known I that you could eat them. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, and that's I no no that's okay. I think that's a good one to start with because it is so easy to recognize. Um, you want to harvest them before they flower. They'll be more tender and and less bitter then. Uh, and sometimes in early spring you can eat them raw, but most people find them more palatable if they're stir fried or or blanched. Um, I love things like uh, like pokeweed or milkweed stems, which. I guess they're not leafy greens, but they're green, and those are those are also delicious. There's so many greens that come up in spring. It's pretty much harvest as much as you can, and then just get them in the freezer and deal with cooking them later, because you know you want to harvest while they're still nice and tender. Okay, so it's funny you bring up milkweed because as a mm -hmm. hunter, hunters are using it more and more, using the floss of the milkweed for a wind check to see which direction <laughs> the wind is blowing. You know, somebody just commented on one of my YouTube videos about exactly that, literally like three days ago, and I had never heard that before. And this guy said, I use that when I'm deer hunting to see which way the wind is blowing. I had no idea you could eat it. <laughs> at, that, at that stage, you can't eat it. But earlier in the season, it's got a lot of different edible parts. So um, I think, and you could, oh, you could serve, you could harvest the immature pods and serve that with venison as a vegetable. That would be really tasty. It sounds good. It sounds yeah. good. Yeah. So I, I just found it really interesting when I was reading your book and, and I watched a YouTube video where you were actually talking about it. And I thought, oh my gosh, oh. I've, I've always waited for it to actually bloom so I could take the floss and not even think about eating a pod. Wait, was that you that left the comment on my it, video? It was not. It oh, was that's not. so funny. Okay. All right. Nice coincidence. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so that's so, good. Definitely yeah. good to know. I, I love milkweed. In fact, I've planted it in my yard here in Santa Fe, and it was great this spring because if I had no veg in the in the refrigerator and it was dinner time, I could go out and I was harvesting those stems for weeks. And by continuously cutting them, they would regrow, and so they were young and tender for a, a much more extended period of time. So that's that's really taking that was actually front yard foraging though, not backyard foraging, <laughs> but still it counts. It's foraging either way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember we used to take the milkweed and that was actually until I started talking to some people about using it for hunting as a wind check, which I mean, mm -hmm. it's great and it makes sense because you can see it a lot more than a fine powder. It stays in the sure. air so much longer, but we used to pick it when we were kids so we could put butterflies and attract butterflies with it. So, and feed our caterpillars. 
Oh yeah. Well, that's, it's, you know, yeah. it's the preferred food of the monarch. And I, I got to tell you, I get asked a lot, but if you eat all the milkweed, you're not leaving anything for the monarchs. You know what? I, people who ask me that or who say that have clearly never stood in a field and been surrounded by acres of milkweed. It has a very aggressive growth habit. And the things that are, the thing that's most threatening to the monarchs is not foragers picking milkweed, it's the loss of habitat due to um, big agriculture. So uh, I don't want to even get into that, but it's something that I feel most foragers are are knowledgeable about and concerned cl- close enough to the environment that they know how to harvest sustainably and leave enough behind for the monarchs, for other foragers, for other animals. So... Okay, that's good. You actually mentioned that because that was yeah. one of my next questions for yeah, you. So yeah, are there before. any guidelines or rules of thumb to live by as a forager? Yeah, there are. There definitely are. And um, I think I think most foragers are fairly connected to their environment. You, you kind of have to be. If you're going to be out in the wild collecting wild edible plants and mushrooms, you, you, it deepens your relationship with your surroundings because you look at it differently. It's not just, oh, that's pretty, or oh, that's a steep hill. You're always looking around you. You're seeing what's growing there, and you're thinking about your relationship to it. So I think that most foragers are really open to the idea of how to do what they do sustainably. We don't want to pillage the landscape. We want to be able to feed ourselves well for years to come. And to do that, you can't just go in and take everything. You look at how much there is and you say, wow, there's not that this year. I'm not going to harvest anything. Or maybe I'll just take a few berries. Or maybe there's a ton of stuff and you say, hey, I can I can get a good load of this and leave plenty for the bear, for the deer, for the skunks, for the raccoons, for everything else that's out there, for the other foragers. Um, and I think you need to be aware of that. It's You're not just feeding yourself. There are animals that need these things to survive. There are other people that want to, to, to eat this food. And you need to leave enough behind so that the plant can propagate itself, so that it can be a perennial vegetable or a perennial mushroom, so that you're not going to devastate the harvest and not have it to go back to. Um, as far as Actual percentages, I, I really couldn't say n- never take more than 10%, never take more than 20%, because a lot of that will depend on how much there is to begin with. That's good to know. I've always heard like a 20% rule, but I guess that makes sense that... Well, yeah, and I think a lot of people say, they do say never take more than a quarter, but if if you only found, you know, 10 blueberries, which is, of course, <laughs> never going to happen, but, you know, I think you really need to use your common sense and think about how much there is to begin with. And, and you might have to take less than 20% if, if there wasn't a lot of what you were foraging for. That makes sense. That's a good way to look at it. Mm-hmm. So um, we still have to do summer, what your favorite yes. thing is. Yeah. Summer is actually really easy for me because it's black raspberries. Oh, I love I don't, raspberries. Do you, I don't yeah, have and, black and, raspberries, but... Yeah. Well, I, I have the mother load of black raspberries and I'm not telling you where they are. That's okay. Um, <laughs> I know you, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't come anyway, but, um, I, I mean, I love all the fruits. I love blueberries. I love blackberries. I love mulberries, but there's something about the flavor of black raspberries that I find really irresistible. And, um, I'm fortunate that I have a, a large 
a large field where I can go and they ripen over a period of about three or four weeks. So you can really harvest a lot and freeze them. And there's nothing like February when you're wondering what to make for dessert and you say, Ooh, I could make a black raspberry crumble or a black raspberry ice cream and, and get that flavor of summer. And it takes you right back to where you were when you, when you picked those fruits and the sweat was dripping down your face because it was so hot and so humid and you're in this field and you're like, is there a bear out there that wants this fruit? It just, it just, it's a, an immediate memory trigger to me. And, and that's very precious. That's kind of funny. You said that my grandmother always told me that her grandmother would say when they were picking in the garden that it may not feel like it's worth it now, but it will be this winter. Oh, well, so, she was right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay. So I recently saw a picture of you and you, I believe you were teaching a class and you were chest deep in a marsh digging for something. Uh, yes. I was not actually teaching that class. I was taking a class from Sam. That was at the Midwest Wild Harvest Festival. And I was up to my neck in the Mississippi. It was in flood. So it was deeper than usual. <laughs> and um, we, were, we were digging for lotus tubers with our feet because lotus tubers are submerged in the mud. And what you do is you have to find the leaf and you follow the stem down and and then you, you do this sort of like dance with your feet in the mud, digging with your toes to find the tuber. Um, they are really worth it though. They're so tasty and they're just beautiful. Have you ever seen a lotus tuber? I don't know if I have, to be honest. I really don't. They, they look like, some people call them mud bananas because they, they do look like bananas. But when you rinse them off and you cut into them, they have this very decorative pattern of holes um, that you slice them into medallions and they're very pretty to look at. You have my book and it has a picture in there. So you, you could see what I'm talking about. I have I'm seen describing it. it very well. Yeah. Um, and they're just delicious. So uh, that's what I was doing in that photograph. I was I was taking a class and it was a lot of fun. So how do you cook those then? Well, you can cook them a lot of ways. You can slice them up and put them in a soup or a stew, and they really maintain. They're not going to disintegrate the way a potato would. Um, but my favorite way is to slice them up and just um, pop them in the fry, Daddy. And I don't fry a lot of foods because I know it's not healthy, but I just think that's the best way to do the lotus. Um, the the t outside gets crunchy and the inside stays nice and soft. Just put a little salt on that and you are good to go. So would you rather have that than a French fry? Yeah, I would. <laughs> and I like French fries, but I'd rather have Lotus. You just you can't buy them easily at McDonald's. So, <laughs> Okay, know. that's good. So one of the things in your book that I saw that I kind of blew my mind because almost everybody has them in landscape as far as decoration, but hostas. I knew you, you were going to say hostas, yeah. Um, hostas are delicious and you know, they are sold as a commercial vegetable in Japan. And, and so often we can find out about plants with edible characteristics. If we look to other cultures, things that we don't eat anymore here, but the people in other parts of the world do, um, as, as so hostas are eaten in Japan, they're sold in markets in Japan, but we can harvest them in spring before the leaves unfurl. And they are just delicious, either stir fried or tossed in a little olive oil and roasted. Um, and one of my favorite ways to eat them is just roasted until they're soft enough to pierce with a fork. And then I wrap them in a little prosciutto and, and eat them on a bed of garlic mustard. They are abs uh, garlic mustard pesto, sorry, garlic mustard pesto. And they are just, it's a wonderful spring dish. 
I highly recommend it. That's interesting. So you don't want to actually eat the leaves. You want to eat the pods before they unfurl. No, it's, it's the, it's like, it's the whole, it is the leaf and the stem, but before it unfurls, it just looks like a stem and okay. and you can eat the leaves after they unfurl, but they get a little bit fibrous. So if you do that, it's best to chop them up and, and use them in a soup, but it's when the leaves are just so young where the spears are coming up out of the ground before the leaves unfurl, that's when they're at their absolute tender best. That's good to know. That's definitely and, and- good to know. Like you said, everybody's got them in the landscape. So, you know, why not give it a try? I think I'm going to have to do that this year. Uh, and I hope you do. I'll email you and let you know how it goes. Okay. Okay. So um, I guess it's been pretty good. I don't really have a whole lot more questions to ask for you. But I think as I continue to forage, I'll probably be reaching out to you again. And maybe we can get together and discuss more things. Well, I, please feel free to ask me anything. I, I love answering foraging questions. It's the thing I'm most passionate about in my life. I mean, other than people, you know, the people in my family. But, but as, as something to do, I just couldn't be happier than when I'm foraging or, or cooking with wild food. So I'm happy to answer any questions. And I want to see you in Prairie du Chien next year at the Midwest will... Wild Harvest Festival. Is it always like the first week of October or is it? It's it's usually the third or fourth weekend in September. And I don't think they've set the dates for 2020 yet, but they will be setting it soon. And I will try to remember to email you when the dates are announced. Okay. So as okay. long as I don't go elk hunting, because that is in September. Uh-huh. Yeah. But I could see why if... elk hunting would, would be a big draw. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I don't know, we'll see what happens there. But otherwise, I would love to be there. Love to meet you in person. And uh, we'll talk more about it. But if someone would like to get in touch with you or start following you on social media, where can they Mm -hmm. find you? Um, So my website is backyardforager.com. You can find me on Facebook at The Backyard Forager. That's my business Facebook page. And I'm on Instagram as Ellen Zakos. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much, Lucas. Have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Publicly Challenged Podcast. If you liked this episode, please subscribe on whatever platform it is that you're listening to. Also, you can find us on Instagram at Publicly Challenged. And you can also find us at Publicly Challenged Podcast or publiclychallenged.com. So please reach out to us with any questions, comments, concerns, or maybe you'd even like to be on the show. And once again, thank you so much for listening. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. Six, eight, Western. Oh, I'll be over there, baby, right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. When you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.